From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This is turning out to be a good year for books about Latin music. Last month, we featured books by Leila Cobo and Beto Arcos about two very distinct areas of Latin music. And this week, we talked to Ben Lapidus about his book, New York and the International Sound of Latin Music from 1940 to 1990. It's a deeply researched and resourced page-turner. Lots of great history and stories that put the music we hear today into historical and cultural context. Ben Lapidus is a Grammy-nominated musician as well as a professor in the Department of Art and Music at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, CUNY, and is also on the doctoral faculty for the music program for the CUNY Graduate Center in New York. And we spoke over Zoom recently about Ben's very interesting proposition that New York City and its musicians have actually influenced Latin music in other countries. I'll let him explain that, but before he does, be advised that this week's show is heavy on conversation and there will be a quiz at the end. Ben Lapidus, welcome to Alt Latino. It's really a thrill and an honor to have you here. Man, it is so great to be here. It's an honor for me and it's a real pleasure to be speaking with you, especially uh, having known you for so long. Yeah, man, we go back a ways. And one of the things I've always admired about your dedication to music, particularly your dedication to the source, the roots, the history, what makes it the music that it is today. And your book is a huge step forward in getting closer to that source. Let's talk first a little bit about the overall premise of the book, which is New York City as a worldwide influencer of well, what we call Latin music between 1940 and 1990. Let's talk about that idea because like, it's something that I had not heard before where New York City actually influences musicians from other countries and then they take that influence back to their own countries. Talk a little bit about that premise. Well, I think um, in terms of New York City as a site for all of this to happen, we can really go back earlier than the 40s um, to be honest, because the first recording ever made of Cuban music in the world was made in New York City in 1899 by the uh, Cuban vocalist. Uh, she was a uh, opera singer, Chalia Herrera. She recorded the Habanera uh, 2, and that was in 1899 in New York City. So from you know well over 100 years, we have a recorded history of Latin music from countries in the Caribbean and elsewhere, happening in New York City. Musicians were coming from around the world in this time period, from Panama, from Cuba, from Puerto Rico, from everywhere. And the ability to play the music at the highest level was what was prized and what was uh, expected. It was less expected really where you came from because looking at the bands from this time period, yes, you have bands that are you know uh, exclusively uh, from one uh, geographical location, but the vast majority of them are mixed bands. You have uh, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Dominicans, Mexicans, uh, North Americans who are Jews, Italians, African Americans, all working together in these bands to shape a particular sound. And then musicians who were working here then were going home and bringing a lot of the concepts that they had uh, gotten together here and taking them back to DR, taking them back to Puerto Rico, taking them back to Colombia, taking them back to uh, Venezuela, taking them back, you know, whenever they could. And there was a back and forth with New York. And then the other thing I would add to that is this this connection with jazz that um, happened here in a really 
organic and a holistic way because you had so many players who were involved in jazz as either um, jazz performers or just jazz enthusiasts and then bringing that into the music. How did that get into the music? There's a constant repetition, which is important to talk about, about, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and Chano Pozo connection. But there are many other connections that were happening. Uh, you look at 1932, Rafael Hernandez, who had been in the Harlem Hellfighters. You know, he had re was recording foxtrots that were bilingual. And then, you know, moving forward, every possible iteration of this, you know, you look at uh, funk groups like Mandrill, who are Panamanians from Brooklyn, and the Panamanians who were here were also playing on Broadway, and they were playing in jazz groups, and they were playing in Calypso bands. So there was just a whole lot of uh, musical activity. Musicians were, were really about trying to play as much music at the highest level possible here. And I think that that attitude and that vision, they carried it with them when they went back home or whatever interactions they had with um, their home country musicians. Let's talk a little bit more about that multiculturalism aspect, because I think that people who have a serious interest in Latin music will uh, understand that there were a lot of people from different cultures that contributed to the sound of New York. But I think that people who are new to the music may not realize that Jews, African-Americans, Italians, talk a little bit about that idea of how these musicians sort of collaborated and took from each other and their different cultures and contributed to a sound? Well, there's a common language, the common language being the Caribbean. I think Cuban music was definitely at the blueprint uh, for this, just in terms of the concept. It wasn't limited to that, right? Because at the same time, you had this vast theater circuit of Puerto Rican music, of people playing, you know, all types of Puerto Rican music, primarily hibaro music, but you had uh, Mexican singers who were also working that circuit at the Teatro Puerto Rico. Uh, people like Paquito Di Rivera came here as a child prodigy to play at the Teatro Puerto Rico, while you had Cuban artists as well, like Rolando La Serie. There were so many scenes where performers from different countries and different uh, communities were coming together to work. But in terms of the musicians coming together, I think it happened in a lot of different ways. Firstly, you had educators. So there were a couple of educators that taught a lot of people. One was Alberto Socarras, who was from Baracoa in, um, in Cuba, who came here. Arguably, he's the first jazz flute solo, I think 1927 with Clarence Williams Orchestra. He wound up staying and teaching tons of musicians. So there's a whole range of musicians who studied with this man, who were Puerto Rican, who were Cuban, who were Dominican, who were Venezuelan, who were Americans, who were not from those countries, who were Italian-American, American Jews. And then there was another guy named uh, Nicolas Rodriguez, who was a Panamanian uh, genius who came early on and started working with Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong. And he taught a ton of people also, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Cubans, everybody. So there were these two guys who taught independently, a large group of musicians. You had reading bands where people would pay $5 to go sit and sit in a saxophone section and read in an afternoon just to practice their sight reading. And then they would go jump in on any band that they could get to where they needed like a third or fourth, you know, uh, alto chair or something like that to hone those chops. They were also taking classical lessons. So there was a network amongst musicians about, you know, who are you studying with? Where are you going to study? Or how are you going to do this? Or where are you going to play tonight? Plus the sessions. Then you had the gigs. So the gigs required people who could play all different types of Latin music. It wasn't limited to Cuban music. It also included Puerto Rican music, Dominican music, Venezuelan music, you know, Panamanian music, Colombian music. 
And musicians are also intellectuals. You know, it's it's not just playing the music. It's let's learn about the music. Let's study the music. Let's listen to the music. At its core, being a musician, you know, requires that type of curiosity and that wanting to improve oneself and round one's skills. And I think all the musicians in the book, and I think largely I would say in New York around this scene, really felt the same way. So it was completely common and normal and part of the way the city works is to see musicians from all different backgrounds coming together on the bandstand to play the music at the highest level. Barry Rogers, jazz trombone player, hooked up you know, with uh, Eddie Palmieri, brought not only a jazz sensibility to Palmieri's band, also introduced Palmieri to Bob Bianco, who's a jazz educator. So, you know, it was a two-way street. Same thing with the Gonzalez brothers, Jerry and Andy Gonzalez. They played classical music at high school music and art. They played jazz. They played Latin music with their dad, who was a singer. They talk about playing Irish Wedding and having to play a bolero version of When Irish Eyes Are Smiling or Danny Boy. You know, it's just, it's about, you know, making the music and the cultures coming into contact. I think, you know, I don't want to paint the picture of that, like, it was all rosy, there was no color, there were no differences, there were no problems and, and preferences and racism, and because that's that's also a big piece of the, of the conversation. But it was about who's going to play this the best and who's going to do it right. And you listen to those recordings, like, for example, the uh, Tito Rodriguez, the classic uh, recording of Esta es mi orquesta, where he's going through the, the, the guys in the band, and you've got Mario Rivera, Enrique Santos, Victor Paz. I just uh, got a New Yorican, a Dominican, and a Panamanian. And then also he had Cachao in the band. I, mean, I could go on and on, Rene Hernandez. So it didn't matter where people came from. It was like, who can play this music the best? Who phrases it the best? Who can play the notes highest, the cleanest all the time? Who's, I mean, Barry Rogers, that's the sound of the trombone in Latin music. And there was a Jewish guy who really pulled that sound together. And it was his concept. Of course, drawing on other things that came before him. But, you know, he's the, he's the, he's the textbook for how to get that trombone sound, a Jewish guy uh, from the Bronx. So those new colors, wherever they came from, whoever decided to put them in, if it worked, you know, let's go with it. And that's that's the next level. You'll have to do that. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you can't play like that, you're not going to get up here and do it, you know. This is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. And we're talking Latin music again, this time with author and educator Ben Lapidus. I want to step back from the book a little bit and, and ask you a question about yourself. And it's something that we've known each other for a long time, but it's something that I, I don't really know. It's like, what is your own journey to Latin music, like how did you get involved? I know you as, uh, of course, a respected uh, teacher and all that, but you're a great dress player. What is your journey? How did you come to Latin okay. music? So it's it's a it's a little bit long and convoluted, but I'll I'll take I'll I'll take you through it. My grandmother was a musician. Uh, she sang and and played piano and accordion. Supposedly, my great grandfather, who I don't know anything about, I heard he was a musician. There's some ambiguity as to where he came from. It seems like it might be Sicily, but I, I'm still, that's my next project is to get into that. My father played piano and accordion in different jazz bands and Latin bands. He played in the Catskills and here in New York. And my family is uh, Jews from Europe. And when they came from Europe to the United States, a branch of people 
went to Mexico, to Monterrey, and to De Efe, and then some people went to Cuba, and some people went to Argentina. Um, I didn't meet uh, really any of those people until I went to college. And then when I went to Cuba for the first time about 24 years ago, I hooked up with some distant relatives from my dad's side. And my father in 19... Like 58 or 59, drove from Brooklyn to Mexico to visit relatives. He drove to Monterrey and to DFA, and then he went to Cuba also. And I heard those stories as a kid, and I was always like, wow, that sounds really cool to think that I have, you know, relatives in these places. It would be really cool to one day, you know, meet them or know more about it. And then my dad's, you know, records and stuff, he would play uh, Latin music and jazz extensively in the house. So from early on, I think the seeds were planted, although as a musician, I didn't really get really serious about music until I was probably like 12 years old. And then I moved to New York City when I was 14. Everywhere around me was Latin music, everywhere. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Like you would go, I remember there was a street festival. That was the first time I saw a cuatro being played. And there was guys playing hero music on the corner. And then there was like a, a merengue tipico band that was, this is in the 80s. Merengue tipico was being played on the corner. And then there was rumba that was happening in Central Park on Sundays. I mean, it was just like, it was like everywhere. And I was just like, man, this is amazing. Cool. And then I went to college and uh, I went to Oberlin because I really wanted to get jazzed going. I really was like, I have to master jazz. And I did the two degree program there. And towards the end of that program, I was like, yeah, well, I love jazz, but you know, my heart is really in Latin music. I mean, this is, this gives me so much joy and this is what I, what I aspire to be is to play this music. And I started playing the tres and the cuatro uh, at that time. But then when I came back to New York, I really just dove in. I just tried to play with as many bands as possible. Around the time that I finished school and I came back home, I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. And, and, and that's what I did. And I just played and toured and, and played with, you know, so many great musicians and bands. And the book is kind of a result of that. It's like being on the bandstand with people and having them tell you something. And you're like, what? Or like, are you serious? They're like, yeah. You know, I used to play regularly with Chocolate Armenteros. I used to drive into some gigs sometimes. And just like, you know, that's a guy who was, you know, Benny More's cousin. And he was in Arsenio's band. And like, you know, just talking with those guys and hanging with them and hearing the stories. And then like, it's my vocation and my avocation. Like, I get paid to, you know, teach and write about this and research it. But it's also like... So I just have a blast just hanging around musicians and playing music and, and, and talking about music. So for me, it's, 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 I'd say music is like my religion, you know, and this, this music particularly. <laughs> we have that in common, man, being able to just indulge our passions, right? Same thing here with doing the show. I want to veer back into the book a little bit and ask you why you wrote this book. I mean, the idea behind this book was really to fill a gap, I think. From an early age, it was impressed upon me how disciplined and how driven and how serious you have to be to play this music. There's this whole joke about, you know, the University of the Corner of Lexington Avenue versus, you know, the Academy. And they both have their merits and their bad sides. But I think so much of the history of this music has been told from the standpoint of it's calle, it's all street. And that's just not true. And from my earliest times around this music um, as a kid I just saw this incredible you know focus 
study discipline to make it happen there's no it was no there's no there's it's not just like you know some kind of thing that people just come out of nowhere doing it takes years to get it together and not there was not just that but there was just like this hidden history if you will you know a lot of people that i really respect that you know as well have written histories of this music and i think in in many cases they're either very general or very specific but they but they don't really connect all of the dots and i think what i felt about this book was like this was an opportunity to connect all of these kind of disparate or seemingly disparate things to paint a picture to show the richness and the depth and the beauty of this scene and this city and how the residents of the city particularly the musicians and the dancers and fans wove this incredible fabric this made this incredible music um, out of this experience of being here that people could be from so many different places and have this collective vision improving your musicianship but also improving the actual music because you love the music and and pushing the music to new places and that it was the foundation for it was laid here you know cuba which i defend cuban music staunchly you know in all of its forms has its own genres of music puerto rico has its own genres of music mexico Dominican Republic, every country in the Americas has its own genres of music. But what's unique about New York, I think, is that the musicians and the fans that require you to play all different types of music. But you can't do it poorly. You have to do it at the highest level. And I feel like putting all of this information into the book as to how they did it, why they did it, what were the processes by which they figured all this stuff out, who were the innovators... Who were the people who taught? Who were the people who built the instruments? Who were the, the folks that were the protagonists? I thought that that story was never told. I feel like a lot of this history of Cuban music, for example, really ends in this period of 1959, when in fact, you know, Cuban music in Cuba has continued to evolve and develop, and Cuban music elsewhere has. And in New York, you know, we had waves of Cuban musicians always coming. And in 1980, we had, you know, 125,000 people come to the United States through the Maria Boatlift. Many of those people uh, settled in South Florida, but a lot of them also went to other cities in the United States. And when they came to New York, they brought the next level of information for folklore and popular music. And they taught a whole lot of musicians here, you know, what was happening musically in Cuba. And that got incorporated into the scene as well. I mean, it happened again in the 90s and in the present. None of that was really talked about. And I always thought to myself, well, why don't people talk about this? Like, why don't people really want to talk about the enormity of, of this? And to be honest with you, there were probably like three chapters that I had to leave out of this book that I feel bad about. But there's there's more work to be done. And I wish I could do it, but it's not humanly possible. I think, I hope other people will... And I know they will will come around and say, well, you forgot this, Lapidus. You got to add this. You got to add this. This is an important story, too. And that needs to be told. And I think there are, there are many. But it was really an attempt to just take all of that information, put it together so that someone could say, like, okay, now I understand why New York is important. It's not Havana. It's not San Juan. It's not Santo Domingo. It's New York. It's different. And this is what happened in New York. And you can hold it up and say, like, okay, I get it. Like, New York had its own thing. And I'm not saying it's better. 
or worse. It's just it's its own it's its own thing. You know, like DC, like DC. There's GoGo. You know, Detroit Motown. You know, uh, you know every city has its has its own its own thing, and this this is ours. What was very helpful for me was also the way you dropped in the integration of current events into musical history. For example, the relationship with Cuba, things that were going on in Puerto Rico, as well as race relations here in the United States. You know, Afro-Latinos, sometimes people forget Afro-Latinos suffered the same kind of discrimination and racism. Talk a little bit about that, about how the current events actually influenced the people that were here and then the way they made the music. Well, I think in particular, if you want to talk about Afro-Latinos, uh, the, you know, the best example I, I could give is the Panamanian musicians. Panamanians um, came and many times uh, they expressed, and I tried to get uh, this in through the book, and, and some people were adamant about having this in the book uh, who shared their stories, that they felt they were treated as second-class citizens. Some of them even had to naturalize before they left Panama even though they were born in Panama. So when they came here, you know, some people said, well, I'd rather be, you know, discriminated in another person's country than in my own country. And they had also lived in a segregated system. I don't know if you know, Panama had the gold and silver system, which was, you know, uh, separate hospitals, separate everything, uh, separate transportation. So here in New York, these particular Afro-Latino musicians um, who had tremendous preparation worked in... African American settings worked in Latino settings, worked in West Indian settings, and there was this ambiguity. Well, who are you? What are you? You know, or sometimes they would get you know ribbed for it. But they were just like you know I am who I am, and this is what I do, and I you know and they they dominated in Broadway, they dominated in jazz, they dominated in um, Latin music, dominated in the West Indian scene. And there was always that awareness of, you know, the self-awareness. And I think in a certain kind of invisibility, if you will, that some of them have expressed uh, because people couldn't like understand what they were. I mean, ultimately, I think through their music, they were able to show that, you know, they were amazing human beings and it was irrelevant. But, you know, in terms of, you know, Cuba, you know, in terms of that, that side of things, you know, the flow of information, I think, is always told as, you know, coming from Cuba to the United States. But clearly, Cuban musicians were getting hip to what was happening here in the States. Stuff that was happening in New York, people were taking note of and even doing covers of songs by New York bands, salsa bands, like um, tunes that had been, you know, popularized by, you know, Ray Barreto and people like that were getting recorded in, in Cuba. And then guys like... Uh, Rene Lopez, who would travel to Cuba and do recordings, or people from Cuba who would come to the States, like Los Papines or Aragon, were hanging out with the musicians here in New York. And in uh, in the times of the 80s, when once uh, someone like uh, Orlando Puntilla Rios came here and were making recordings, those recordings would make their way back to, to Havana. So it was circular. It wasn't just a one-way street, and it wasn't, like you know everything is cut off and by no by no means was that was that true even at the worst moments you know there was still some some back and forth and i think i think that's that's another thing that i just thought was like really important to to write about because you know history doesn't end in 1959 musicians don't think that way musicians want to get the most current information 
state of the art, send their music back and forth. And the, and these particular musicians in the book, they were meeting the Cuban counterparts wherever they toured. If they were in Europe on a festival, they would hang and play together. If they were in Panama, Colombia, Venezuela, there was a lot of interactions throughout the 70s and 80s, particularly. It's a misnomer and it's misinformation to say that those kind of exchanges, musical exchanges, didn't happen throughout that whole time period. Let's talk a little bit about um, that influence and that continuum. Uh, you mentioned a, a quote from, I think it was Andy Gonzalez, um, that there's a continuum between like the music of James Brown and Arsenio Rodriguez. Take that a little step further. Explain a little bit how that also influences the 20-somethings now that are doing hip-hop, R&B, even reggaeton there in New York. How is the stuff that you talk about in your book influencing what's happening right now? I think in the sense that this is not a new situation. This has been happening for over 100 years. Now we're in 2021. Let's say it's been happening for 122 years. You have had these influences, these musical practices coming together. Um, you have people experimenting, people traveling and spreading the music far and wide. And, you know, the explosion of reggaeton and the ubiquitousness of it is just another iteration, I think, of the explosion and the ubiqui ubiquitousness of of all types of Latin music over the last 122 years, whether it's rumba, son, danzón, you know, think about the crazes that happened, you know, fast forward, you know, the cha-cha-cha, uh, the fact that the clave beat was being played in, you know, Bo Diddley's uh, music, uh, and then doo-wop, the mixing together of doo-wop with rumba that, you know, People like Abraham Rodriguez did with uh, Totico y sus rumberos. Uh, the mixing together of, you know, dance hall. Uh, you know, Panamanians were the ones who were digging dance hall because their ancestry was Jamaican. They had such a tie to Jamaica. So uh, dance hall from Jamaica was really popular in, in Panama. And then once Puerto Ricans, you know, got hold of that, you know, it, it went to the next level. And Puerto Ricans have been involved uh, with hip hop and R and B for a long time as as dancers and and as uh, participants in the music, you know, you think of people like uh, DJ Charlie Chase, or think about the Caribbean influence of hip hop being bigger with you know Cool Herc and Africa Bambada. All these guys came from Caribbean families, so I think today, you know, all these artists who are bilingual and uh, having success, you know, performing. Uh, their music today is really just the 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 next chapter of something that's been happening for a really really long time, you know. And it's it's um it's not new. Uh, it's great to see. And I think you know whether or not you like the music personally is really irrelevant because it just shows how how deep and how interconnected all this stuff is, and how it's just like it's the next it's the next. Thing. Who knows Who knows what's going to happen next, like in 20 years from now. But, you know, it's really, it makes sense. And it makes sense. And it's not, it's not limited to the Caribbean. Like when you think about, you know, Selena. I just saw uh, like a video of a little kid uh, singing Selena. And I was just like, you know, this kid could, uh, 
this could 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 be the next the next person you know doing this too so you know and there's a precedent for that and who came before her and who came before that person you know so i think you have to look at this and say like wow this is amazing this is this is history just keeps playing itself out this is just the next expression of something that's been happening for a long time that's a great spot to tie all this up man thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about uh about your new book uh wish you a lot of success in the book it's a good work man it's a great work great job thank you so much for sharing your time man thank you for having me it's a real pleasure and a real honor Again, my thanks to my old friend Ben Lapidus, author of the new book, New York and the International Sound of Latin Music, 1940 to 1990. And for even more info about this topic, don't forget the other two authors we interviewed last month, Leila Cobo and her book, Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music, and Beto Arcos with his book, Music from the Cosmic Barrio. All three cover a wide swath of history, context, and personal stories of contemporary Latin music, which is what we're all about here on Alt Latino. And remember I said there would be a quiz? I'm giving you a pass. Don't worry about it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. As always, thank you so much for listening. Vax up. Keep your distance. Stay safe out there, folks.